Welcome to episode 100. Woohoo! This is, uh, I never thought we'd get here, uh, but I am sitting, uh, uh, against a backdrop of giant balloons spelling out 100. I have a cake in front of me that's uh, uh, got 100 candles, or at least candles that say 100 uh, on it. Uh, uh, this is uh, uh, episode 100 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, remarkably, uh, we have survived into uh, our next 100 uh, uh, episodes. Uh, it's brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and I'm joined today. We couldn't get quite the full crew, but we have most of them. Uh, um, I should say our guest commentator, uh, uh, whom I've just already interviewed, uh, uh, will be David Chris, um, who was the Assistant uh, Attorney General for National Security and is the co-author of the principal uh, uh, National Security Handbook uh, or treatise uh, uh, on national security law, including FISA, and is currently the general counsel of Intellectual Ventures. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Section 702 and how it might be changed um, in the run-up to reauthorization uh, in 2017. Uh, uh, for the news roundup, we've got Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. We've got Alan Cohn, formerly head of tr uh, strategy for DHS. We've got Maury Shank, our all-everything in London, uh, former managing partner, uh, advisor on te European tech and cybersecurity issues, also uh, private equity investor and director on technology companies. I am Stuart Baker, holding the record for returning to Steptoe the most number of times uh, of any other lawyer. Uh, and uh, uh, I took time out to go to NSA, to DHS, and to a variety of other um, uh, 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 uh Frolics and detours that I won't get into here. Uh, why don't we jump right into the news? Because uh, uh, the cake could just as easily be celebration for the fact that uh, we have white smoke from Brussels. Uh, uh, the safe harbor has been reborn as privacy shield. Uh, everybody has agreed that the U.S. is going to change a variety of things and uh, the European Commission is going to find the U.S. adequate. Uh, um, a, the uh, the exact details are a little unclear. Uh, uh, Michael, what can you tell us about the privacy shield and where does it stand? Yeah, if, if anyone's going to celebrate the uh, announcement of the privacy shield with a cake, I think it would have to be a, a Christmas fruitcake, the sort of cake that nobody ever wants to receive and nobody ever eats. This is really uh, uh, not much to celebrate at all. Um, you know, there's, there's a press release announcing agreement, but the details are still lacking, and the, the details are critical. And, and the things that we do know, to me, don't really seem to amount to much new. Um, so, for instance, there, there, the announcement said that there will be strong obligations uh, on the part of U.S. companies to protect personal data from European residents, but we don't know what those obligations will be, whether they go beyond the safe harbor principles. There is a commitment on the part of the U.S. Uh, to um, make sure that intelligence uh, activities are proportional, uh, follow 
you know, clear laws and things like that. I think U.S. officials have taken the position all along that they follow the law, that you know, only engage in surveillance for uh, important national security reasons. So uh, that but the, 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 the rules the, are relatively transparent. It's so you know I'm not really sure there's much substance to to what's been said at least so far. So the the, the safe harbor did say well you 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 have to handle this data as though you were in Europe handling data uh, and that commitment uh, existed before Privacy Shield and is it's not clear how much different uh, Privacy Shield will be. Uh, uh, but there are some kind of promises about how the U.S. is going to administer uh, its law that that I think are probably the main differences between Privacy Shield and Safe Harbor. Well, again, I'm, I'm not really sure it's very different. So the Department of Commerce is supposed to monitor what companies publish about their commitments to these robust obligations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those promises are supposed to be enforceable by the Federal Trade Commission. That's no different from, from today. You know, Commerce was sort of the administrator of the safe harbor uh, and the self-certification process, uh, and the FTC has always had the authority to police what companies say and make sure that companies do what they say they will do. That's no different under the, the privacy shield. Uh, it's not clear exactly what the Commerce Department's role is when, when they allude to uh, it's monitoring what companies publish about their commitments. So I, I guess they'll see, you know, if company uh, ABC Corp uh, says, you know, we're going to do this and that with your data, you know, maybe the Commerce Department will keep a, a directory of, of what companies like ABC Corp will do uh, so that the FTC has something to uh, to go by, and they can examine then, okay, what does company ABC Corp actually do uh, when measured against its uh its promises, but that's it's really nothing new. The, the FTC has authority under the FTC Act to police deceptive practices. Well, and the, so if the company did, says did, it's doing X, Y, and Z, and it's not. That's something the FTC can enforce. Didn't the um, Commerce Department always keep a list of safe harbor companies? There's almost nothing new. There'll be little tweaks, uh, and they'll be repackaged and resold as as major new innovations uh, with respect to the companies. There's nothing new in the structure, um, right. you know, I, and I agree with Michael in, in essence from what we've seen. But the safe harbor before wasn't a replication of EU data protection principles. It was a simplified version. And there could be more detail and there could be a stricter enforcement mechanism. So I think we have to see presumably there is more of that stuff. Yeah. So we've got to wait for the details. Right, and, and we'll have to see what the FTC actually does, even once the details of the of the plan are out, because um, the FTC may have said, you know, to its counterparts in the U.S. government, we'll be mu- we'll be much more active in policing the safe the, the the privacy shield than we were with the safe harbor, because the truth of the matter is, with safe harbor, there were you know uh, a few FTC enforcement actions involving the safe harbor, but but the vast majority of them involve companies that said publicly that they were members of the safe harbor, but they had let their certifications lapse. <laughs> so that was the whole basis for the enforcement action. There were not uh, many, if, if any, cases in which the FTC actually examined whether a company uh, abided by the safe harbor principles, which involves a lot more work than just seeing if somebody's certification is, is current. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And of course, from the FTC's point of view, having to do an investigation that isn't triggered by uh, um, a press release or, or press reports is pretty inconsistent with their usual approach to litigation. So they, they're not enthusiastic about doing hard work on a likely compliant company to see whether there are some technical footfalls. Uh, uh, that's just not what the FTC likes to do. Yeah, they wait for the big test case or, or the, you know, the, the big um, uh, case that can make a, that, that's already made a splash in the news that they can then uh, have an enforcement action against and, and then announce a, a, a settlement, um, sometimes with money, uh, sometimes with just a promise to, uh, you know, institute comprehensive written information security plan and, and do, you know, steps one through ten and, and have oversight for a number of years. That, that's the typical playbook. So they don't, as you say, they don't, you know, just go around doing um, audits of companies that have promised to abide by whether it was a safe harbor before or the privacy shield going forward. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to. The problem I see with. Go ahead. Uh, the big problem I see with privacy shield is even once we know the details, it's going to take a while for this to settle down, be approved, survive its challenges, and companies doing business across Europe um, want some certainty. Um, when you know when they're transferring data, and this privacy shield doesn't look like it's going to provide that certainty anytime soon. That's the thing that's most troubling about this is because uh, uh, my quick takeaway on this is there's almost no change from the point of view of a company that's already in the safe harbor uh, between what privacy shield's going to ask uh, the company to do and what safe harbor required. Uh, but. Um, you would, where the company gets no certainty uh, because they're they're told yes there's a there's an agreement and you'll get to see it in the sweet by and by and probably everybody in the Article 29 working party after they've expressed all their uh, doubts and qualms will get on board and probably you'll be okay but none of that is certain that's pretty discouraging uh, um, but let's 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 move on. I um, I, I do want to talk about a HIPAA case uh, uh, involving Lincare. It was a two hundred and forty thousand uh, dollar uh, penalty uh, being imposed. Uh, uh, Alan, uh, I don't know if you looked at this, but uh, I. I have to say, this is this is a classic example of why privacy law usually turns out to be just stupid. Uh, um, this is a this is a case in which Lincare paid the penalty because um, the, one of its employees had stored patient records in her car, and she lost control of the, her car. Right. So perhaps even more salaciously, the um, uh, an, a, uh, an employee of the of the of Lincare basically got into a dispute with their ex-husband as they were uh, as they were not not yet ex, but, but, yes. but on, on uh, the way to ex the, yes. on the way to ex uh, ex-husband and uh, and as part of the acrimony as they were uh, they were separating um, uh, the the ex the soon to be ex-husband told both the company and HHS's Office of Civil Rights. Um, that his soon-to-be ex-wife had left 
um, what turned out to be uh, things like an emergency procedures manual that had the names and addresses and uh, of all of, so like there, of 270 he, he, patients he, he, and he, such. He found files yes. down behind the the, the seat of the car uh, and uh, and decided that uh, uh, that was a violation of HIPAA. And it was, right? Yes. There were like I mean, it, it, 50 or 100 names mm-hmm. there and some medical data. Uh, what, what this says is, you know, you're, it's, it's malpractice if you're a divorce lawyer, if you don't ask whether there might be some HIPAA personal data that you could use as leverage. I mean, uh, the $240,000 fine uh, could have gone as, uh, you know, a- added alimony. Well, really, there should be a whole sheet of, of all of the categories of protected information <laughs> to go search around the house, the it. car, um, the the summer house, the chateau, the hunting lodge for, okay. for anything that you might find. Uh, so. uh, it, it, it is, it's classic. Uh, uh, all right. Um, in addition to the European uh, uh, negotiations, the British are doing a negotiation uh, uh, with the U.S. Uh, and passing a law uh, that's getting some uh, attention. Uh, uh, the the negotiation is the one that's interesting because it's an, an effort to get hold of uh, uh, wiretap orders and search warrants and get them served. Uh, uh, British search warrants served in the United States. Uh, Michael Morey, uh, is this new or is this just something that's been uh, in the works for a while? It's not new. It came in in 2014 in something called the Data Retention and Investigatory Powers Act, uh, which was supposedly mostly about confirming UK data retention legislation to a decision of the European uh, Court of Justice, but they slipped in this extraterritorial authority, um, and people didn't pay a lot of attention to it at the time. Um, but it, it's being replicated pretty much without increase of authority in this uh, proposed new um, communications data legislation, um, uh, surveillance legislation, and now it's generated a bit of a storm. So the, the, I, I think the new the new part is what is what uh, Ellen Nakashima, our, our frequent. Uh, contributor to the podcast from the Washington Post has, has reported, um, which is that uh, American authorities apparently are, are trying to help the, the U.K. authorities, um, uh, which I think involves seeking amendments to ECPA that would allow uh, service providers that store data of U.K. customers in the U.S. to respond directly to wiretap and orders and search warrants served on them by the U.K. authorities. So, 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 the, UK so they ha- the U.K. authorities have this ability under their own domestic law, but American providers say, hey, we can't respond to this because we're not allowed to provide content uh, or do a wiretap order um, in the U.S. unless it's pursuant to U.S legal process. Okay, that makes sense. And that's so, what they're trying to get around. So so the the, the problem is the, you could get under new uh, revised UK law, you could issue these extraterritorial search warrants, but then they would run smack into uh, ECPA uh, and you'd have a conflict of laws and uh, uh, people would be liable if they did and liable if they didn't comply with the warrants. Uh, and so uh, the Justice Department is negotiating with the British government over exceptions that could be made to the uh, uh, to ECPA that would allow uh, uh, warrants to be served and honored uh, from the UK in the US yeah that's that's my under, understanding and uh, you know I think uh, Edward Snowden uh, tweeted about this that you know last time something like this was proposed uh, we called out the Minutemen 
<laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I, I'll just have to uh, accept that Edward I know, Snowden. I know that that instantly uh, instantly makes you think that that it must be a good idea if Snowden's criticizing of it. Of course, but it, I think it, it does underscore that this is a pretty um, momentous proposal. If if the U.S. is going to allow a foreign country, even if it's our closest ally. Uh, uh, to basically serve wiretap uh, orders or um, search warrants that that obligate providers to take action here in the U.S. to to respond. Yeah, no, it, it is a and big change deal. U.S. law. Um, it, that's it, something new. It, it is, uh, um, and uh, likely to prove controversial. My bet is that uh, getting this through uh, uh, Congress will not be all that easy, uh, uh, and somebody is bound to bring up uh, 1776, uh, so uh, looking forward to that. Uh, let me uh, uh, turn to uh, uh, a couple of final items. Uh, one, uh I don't know, Alan, whether you saw this, the, the, but our old, uh, your old uh, boss, uh, she was never mine, uh, Janet Napolitano, is now running uh, the, the UC Berkeley uh, um, uh, system, and uh, um, uh, she ran into a, uh, a HIPAA problem, right? A, 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 a Breach of the healthcare system network uh, uh, at the UC uh, uh, Medical Center, uh, and having run into that problem, decided to uh, adopt a whole bunch of new network security measures, which immediately led to uh, a, a bunch of professors to scream that their privacy had been interfered with. Well, that's interesting. So, yes, yeah, so Janet Napolitano, after leaving Homeland Security, became actually the president for the entire University of California system, Right. Um, had a breach at the UCLA Medical Center, um, and implemented basically a system that will look very familiar to her from the types of things. It's that, Einstein yeah. again, yes. <laughs> um, but what she ran into was a different set of constituents um, than she would have run into in the previous role, which are the tenured academic faculty of Berkeley, uh, uh, UC Berkeley, um, who objected to the idea of you know, a centralized monitoring system, either the University of California itself or its security contractor, holding on to things like metadata or logs or, you know, or, or well, other things. Pretty much that anything, are, as, right. far as I can tell. Yes, right. exactly. Uh, yes. <laughs> so... Um, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm puzzled over this because it's inconceivable that uh, uh, UC Berkeley doesn't have, or UC, the whole UC system doesn't have a very strong obligation to protect their networks so that the data that's running on there, that's health data, is is fully protected. So this is a, this is a fight between the privacy zealots of. UC Berkeley and the privacy zealots of uh, the Office of Civil Rights at HHS. Is that right? Well, yes, yes. And it's also an interesting, again, another illustration of, uh, of where um, you can distrust the people running your networks more than you distrust the people trying to get into them. Um, <laughs> Uh, and choose to to um, to attack the secure rather than the uh, uh, than the attacker. 
All right. Well, that'll be entertaining to watch that uh, that fight play out. Uh, And last uh, uh, topic, just to uh, uh, close up, uh, uh, for those of you who are really paying attention, uh, uh, you'll remember that there was a company called Norse Security that uh, challenged the FBI's attribution of the Sony attack, uh, saying, no, we think it was uh, uh, Russians uh, who who launched that attack. Uh, um, Well, Norse Security uh, is in the process of disappearing. Uh, 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 Brian Krebs wrote a long blog post uh, about them suggesting that they uh, 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 were something less than a, a useful contribution to secure the security industry. Uh, and uh, I, the uh, co-founder of Norse said uh, uh, Gee, the um, the attack on Norse demonstrate how today's media can be manipulated by persons to suit their purposes or personal vendettas, uh, uh, and how facts can be misrepresented to lead an entire industry astray, which could have been exactly what the FBI would have said about them when they released this um, uh, 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 challenge to uh, uh, Norse security. Uh, um, so I I think that my my suggestion for a motto for that is live by the flashy but inaccurate press report, die by the flashy but inaccurate press report. Uh, A useful way to close off the news roundup for uh, 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 for the week. Well, welcome to the interview portion of our uh, show. I'm here with David Chris. Uh, uh, David is um, the general counsel of Intellectual Ventures, which has nothing to do with uh, uh, FISA or uh, National Security Intercepts. Uh, but before he took that job, he was the assistant attorney general for national security, uh, and he's the author of the most compendious and impressive volume on FISA and national security intercept law that uh, uh, exists. What's the title? National Security Investigations and Prosecutions. It's a it's a it's a remarkable book, uh, uh, and uh, even more remarkable, he now does it in his spare time, which is pretty impressive. The book is a wonderful non-narcotic sleep aid, guaranteed not to be habit forming. Yeah, the, the risk though is if you fall asleep with it on, over your face, you know, <laughs> dangerous things could happen. Uh, but uh, no, I, and he manages to translate many of the legal issues associated with FISA into uh, language that uh, even I can understand. Uh, I was going to say you had forgotten more uh, FISA law than I ever knew, but I think I've forgotten a lot of FISA law myself. Right. Uh, the, the real problem is you remember more than I do. Uh, so what, what I thought we ought to talk, uh, talk about, uh, if it's okay, is uh, the topic that will be consuming national security groupies for the next year and a half, which is the renewal uh, of Section 702. Uh, this, this is a program that's been around a long time uh, started as a, the president's warrantless wiretap program uh, uh, and then uh, um, approved in some dramatic last minute uh, uh, events uh, first uh, in 2000 what uh, five or six uh, and then reauthorized in a, a real cliffhanger uh, where uh, candidate Obama had to uh, announce that he supported the renewal of this authority. Uh, uh, but there was a big debate 
Uh, and uh, since then, Section 702 has turned out to be one of the most productive intelligence programs we have. Uh, but let me ask you to explain what 702 actually authorizes. Sure. Um, yeah, it is one of the probably the most important provision of the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, and it will be coming up for renewal at the end of 2017, so the debate is sure to begin soon. I mean, fundamentally, 702 allows the government to target for collection through electronic surveillance, let's say, a, a non-U.S. person who is reasonably, reasonably believed to be located abroad. And unlike traditional FISA, 702 does not require the court, the FISA court, to make individualized determinations of probable cause about a particular target or a particular facility, like a telephone number or an email address, that the government wants to surveil. Instead, under 702, the court approves targeting and minimization procedures that set standards for targeting, and the government then applies those directly by itself to each individual target and facility or selector that it wants to monitor. So this is, to to take the big picture, FISA is stuff that's happening inside the United States, and 12333, which is the president's authorization to conduct signals intelligence, is what NSA does around the world uh, in foreign countries. And 702 sort of is is, uh, halfway between, uh, because it's stuff that's happening abroad, but which for one reason or another, is at least having a cup of coffee in the United States. Well, the the classic example of what motivates 702 technologically um, is an email exchange between two foreigners, both of whom are located outside of this country, neither of whom has ever set foot in this country or has any connection to this country, other than the fact that they opened a free email account with Hotmail or AOL or some other provider. And under traditional FISA before the FISA Amendments Act, the fact that that email was stored in a U.S. provider's servers here in the United States made it subject to traditional FISA and the highest level of protection that that statute affords. The FISA Amendments Act in 702 took that situation, these two foreigners using U.S. infrastructure to communicate, out from under traditional FISA and made it subject to this looser uh, regime in which the executive branch has more discretion and is applying the court-approved procedures on a case-by-case basis. Um, and it's profoundly affected the scope of FISA surveillance. Um, I don't have the exact numbers at hand, but traditional FISA covers somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000, 1,500, maybe as high as 1,800 targets at its peak. FISA Amendments Act 702 is reportedly covering nearly 100,000 so we, we never, it would have been impossible to do that using FISA. Uh, I have some familiarity with the traditional FISA process, and I do think it is hard to imagine it ever covering that many people. So this is interesting because, I, I mean, I, and, and uh, telling, because it's very productive. It would have been impossible using FISA, and the only reason we're not, that, that we're not using FISA is the president just ignored the law and said we're going to do it anyway? That's, I mean, I, I, I my reading of the FISA Act was uh, you can't do anything 
in the United States except by virtue of this uh, uh, this statute. And uh, uh, the decision by the president not to give effect to that is kind of hard to square with the law. Um, you can look at the FISA Amendments Act, I think, through a technological lens, the way I just explained with the email example. You can look at it politically as a reaction to the disclosures in late 2005 of the terrorist surveillance program and in a way a legislative ratification yeah. of what was going on in the TSP with a lot of Sturm und Drang and high-powered debate and important disagreements and in the law, importantly, a, a reaffirmation by Congress that the FISA Amendments Act and the rest of FISA are the exclusive means by which the executive may conduct the activities that the statute describes. So Congress did reauthorize, did essentially authorize some version of the TSP. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but not too much of one for present purposes. They also did enact some restrictions on surveillance of U.S. persons abroad and set up a statutory and court uh, review procedure for that. Mm -hmm. um, and then also reaffirmed the exclusivity of the statutory scheme as modified um, in this space. So you can look at it both through a political yeah, lens I, I, and a technological I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about you know, the, the grand experiment of intelligence under law, which we are embarked on, uh, and persuading others to join us in. Um, but if intelligence under law means you can't do a program that now we believe is essential to our security without violating the law, without the president deciding to violate the law, intelligence under law doesn't look very flexible or um, a, a appropriate to the long haul. Well... Stuart, I guess someone who disagreed with you would say that the president didn't need to just violate the law. He, he could, could have, have sought an amendment to the law. There was the Patriot Act. There was quite a lot of amendments to law in there. The TSP, he decided to, I guess, do it on his own, and it was only after the leak by the New York Times... That it went to. That it became a. No, you're right. You're right. So he could have done that. It would have been a harder sell because nobody knew how productive it was going to be. Uh, though I suppose they could have looked at the FISAs that they were currently using. Well, if it's not too much of a digression, I mean, it's interesting to look at sort of the two big changes to FISA and surveillance law coming out of 2001. One had to do with tearing down the FISA wall between intelligence and law enforcement, and that was done in a slow manner relatively overtly culminating in a 2002 decision of the FISA Court of Review right. that was publicly known and in which the ACLU and other groups, I think, were able to file amicus briefs, even if they couldn't see the particular facts that gave rise to the case. The TSP and the surveillance program that ultimately led to the FISA Amendments Act was done in a different way. First, the executive branch did it clandestinely without public knowledge, although there was, I gather, some uh, advice to Congress, and to the court. Then they brought it under the FISA court briefly going to the judicial branch of government, but that experiment did not survive the second judge to review it, essentially. And then the third branch, the legislative branch, had its crack at it in 2007 in the Protect America Act and then the FISA Amendments Act itself in 2008. So from a just a civics perspective, you can see the involvement of all three branches of government in these two fundamental changes in our surveillance law, but it's done in a very different way and, you know, with different, uh, with different outcomes. Um, but here we are with the FISA Amendments Act, and we will have an opportunity as a country now to consider for the second time the extension of that law for another 
presumably five so years. Given, given that uh, there is, I, I think, broad consensus that this is valuable, the fact that it's been debated before, I, it looks as though most of the changes that are kind of being debated are pretty modest. Uh, and do you, where do you see the debate going um, that might make a difference in how we gather intelligence? Yeah, I think the, um, I agree with you that right now the debate seems focused on some matters that, while they're important, I think are, they're more incremental, I think, and they fit comfortably, by and large, within our existing paradigms. Um, that is due, I think, frankly, to the superb work of the PCLOB in its 2014 report on Section 702, the Privacy Civil Liberties Oversight Board wrote a long and, and very authoritative report identifying a handful of issues that the PCLOB thought and that needed to be dealt with. The executive branch has actually taken up a number of those issues itself and made changes without the need for legislative reform. Um, but there are a few more that may be still pending out there, and there's always the chance of Congress legislating, even if the executive has done something on its own, because there's a difference between the executive doing it and the executive being required by statute to do it. Um, I mean, I have written a paper for Ben Wittes and Jack Goldsmith that'll soon be on lawfare, identifying the six issues that I think are going to come up and dominate the debate. Um, the one of those six that is, to me, by far the most important with the potentially most far-reaching implications is what to do about 12333 surveillance, surveillance under the executive order, which currently is not regulated. This by is what, this is what my, uh, uh, my deputy general counsel when I was at NSA used to describe as uh, calls from Minsk to Pinsk. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's, one, that's certainly one version of it. And there are um, attorneys general and uh, defense secretaries who have uh, referred to it as, you know, vacuum cleaner surveillance. It is, um, it is a, a wide aperture. Um, and it is not regulated by statute and has not been. Um, the PCLOB is currently writing a report on 702. Nobody knows what that report will say, but it's certainly imaginable, I think it likely, that at least some members of the PCLOB will recommend grafting on to 12333 surveillance some or perhaps all of the procedures that currently govern 702 surveillance. That's that's a potentially paradigm shifting change if it happens. And oh yeah, that would so that would thinking in terms of actual justification, individualized justification for intercepting a person's communications. Exactly. And twelve triple three is really meant to apply abroad, as you say, involving foreign communications, often between foreign governments. It's it's not for in the United States. And um, and, and the reason, I mean. NSA developed its capabilities in order to find out, you know, are the Russians planning to come through the fold of gap uh, and uh, start World War III um, and a variety of other desperate uh, uh, questions. Uh, and they were doing whatever worked. And it was perfectly clear you could not engage in prior determination about which phone numbers to look at or uh, which cables to try to intercept. You had to scarf up as much as you could and then sort it out afterwards. And so if 
702 type procedures were applied in the 12333 setting, it, it might have a very significant effect. And so to me, of the six issues I think very likely to come up, that one is the most profound. It's just hard to talk about it in any great detail right now because the PCLOBS report hasn't yet emerged, although I think it all but inevitable the report will be out before uh, the end of 2017, so we'll have an opportunity to think about it in the context. Well, of and I fear that looking at the uh, lineup at the PCLOB, uh, there's not a lot of restraint on the, on, on the three votes that dominate the PCLOB on this issue. Uh, uh, I can't think of somebody who's going to be a uh, tiebreaker there who might moderate it uh, so we can expect a three to two decision and uh, report uh, uh, and if they get into the, the, the if they try to bring all of these American legal principles and prior review principles to 12333 it really will be a uh, triumph of law over good sense and, and we'll, we'll see obviously I mean they you know I've, I've been quite impressed by the P clubs thoroughness and care in their reports, and I don't always agree with everything that any one member of the, of the board s says, but, you know, they may not, they may not go as, as I'm Let's suggesting. I just think it's a possibility and it'll be, it'll be a, it'll be a robust topic for debate with potentially paradigm shifting cons uh, possibilities, you know, if we go all the way. Uh, the other issues, as I say, I think they're important. I don't mean to denigrate them or discard them, but I, I understand how they work within our existing frameworks, uh, and I think members of Congress will as well. So let me ask then the, the question that uh, at least people who are worrying about this um, in Congress should be asking. Um, if those are second-order questions, what are the first-order questions? What, sh what should we be doing to uh, uh, 702 and uh, the law that governs NSA? Well, I'm so glad you asked, Stuart. Um, you know... I've got in the paper I wrote about six issues that I think really should be considered. Um, I'm not sure they will, but of course, <laughs> by describing the situation, I guess I'm hoping to change that and, and have them subject to some focused debate, uh, either in connection with 702 renewal or in a parallel proceeding. Um, as long as we come to grips with them, uh, that's what I care about. Uh, I guess I can go through them fairly quickly. The, the, the first one is um, we've had a lot of debate about encryption. Um, and I, I don't try to talk about that in my paper, and I won't bore people here. But encryption is putting pressure on the so-called technical assistance provisions in FISA and the FISA Amendments Act, as well as uh, Title III, the criminal wiretap statute. All those laws have some version of a, of a, of a provision that requires providers, communications providers, telephone companies, ISPs, email providers, to give technical assistance to the government in implementing a court-authorized... But if, they, if they've if created end-to-end -end encryption that they don't have the key to, they, their, their response to a technical assistance order is, I can't give you any assistance. And there's going to be, I think, increasing pressure on from the government pushing these providers to provide more and more technical assistance, even if it stops short of outright decryption of someone else's... Uh, uh, encryption program to try to help them get text or voice so, in the clear. So it, it, could you get a technical assistance order that says you must serve an update to this one subscriber 
uh, and it will reduce his encryption to uh, the level of a Caesar cipher, right? Uh, uh, because that is going to provide technical assistance to the wiretap. Well, that is ex a perfect example of the kind of question I think that we ought to come to grips with. Existing case law does not really authoritatively answer it. There is right now in the Eastern District of New York, in front of my old friend Jamie Orenstein, uh, a fight between uh, New York U.S. Attorney's Office, I think it's actually the Southern District, um, no, it must be the Eastern District, and Apple, over whether Apple can be compelled by way of the All Writs Act to assist in the decryption of an iPhone that is the subject of a Rule 41 search warrant. And this is one where they actually could do it, but they're saying, yeah, but it would be bad for our, be our, our, our reputation with customers who, uh, who, who don't want law enforcement to be able to read their stuff. That's right. And that is, I think, the state of the law uh, when it comes to technical assistance under the uh, technical assistance provisions themselves or under the All Writs Act, which the Supreme Court has treated somewhat analogously in the New York Telephone Company case. So we're going to need to think about things like can a provider be compelled to push down a widget or some other kind of <laughs> software solution? The United Kingdom, for its part, is currently debating that very issue. They have an extraordinarily explicit piece of legislation pending, the Investigatory Powers Bill, which is very, very clear in talking about what the Brits term uh, equipment interference, um, but there's absolutely no uh, shilly-shallying around it. They are talking about pushing down software or other kinds of surveillance aiding devices. And there's been a lot of public debate, including from U.S. providers who have weighed in. Um, they must be appalled. Um, it seemed to me from reading their comments that they were, by and large, against that kind of authority. My point is not to take a position on it, but only to say that's an example of the kind of debate that I think we need to be having in this country, because we're going to have more and more pressure on that technical assistance provision uh, with things developing the way they have. Been. So that, and I, that also raises, I guess, uh, one of your other points, which is the, uh, the international dimension and the extent to which U.S. companies are going to get hammered by foreign uh, uh, governments uh, for lack of cooperation and what we are going to do about it, if anything. Yes. Um, th there is a, a lot of good writing right now, as well as something I've done on the topic of cross-border data uh, requests, which are just situations in which government A demands the production of data that is stored physically inside of the borders of government B. Um, and it's it's been increasingly tense right now. Um, U.S. providers store a lot of data on servers in the United States. They also store some abroad. We know that from the Dublin case in which Microsoft is fighting with the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. But our Stored Communications Act generally forbids the production of stored data, like email, absent certain kinds of court orders, not including foreign governmental directives. So the British... But, you know, my, my impression is, well, first, this is not... The new issue, when I was in government uh, eight years ago, we were giving visa waiver treatment to a country, and I had to call them up and say, you know, you're not, you, you shouldn't expect to get visa waiver treatment if you tell companies like AOL and Microsoft that you're putting their people in jail for failing to hand over uh, data that is protected by U.S. law. It, is an, it has roots, this problem, going all the way back to the bank secrecy laws of certain foreign countries when they would get grand jury subpoenas and they would say, we can't produce these right. documents because local law forbids it. And sometimes U.S. courts would be sympathetic. More often, they would be not so sympathetic. 
Um, the, the stakes have risen with digital data and the, and the encryption, I think, that has challenged the British and other foreign governments' ability to collect on their own. Um, they have enacted, in Great Britain, extraterritorial statutes that say, if you're providing service to someone inside the United Kingdom, then we want the data regardless of where the data are stored. We don't care. But again, in the United States, if the data are stored here, it's currently illegal to provide so them. The so way, we've got some tension there. The way people have, the way providers have tended to uh, skirt this issue is, if I remember, the Stored Communications Act has a, an exception for um, danger to life and limb uh, and emergencies. emergencies. And uh, uh, people have found a lot of emergencies, uh, including yeah. uh, maybe maybe their view is, if if you're going to put my people in a Brazilian jail, that's a danger to life and limb. <laughs> I would say that neither the emergency exception nor the you know existing MLAT procedures have proven sufficient. And again, I see pressure rising, and I think something is going to have to be done. I so, do think so, no, the, but let me, let me ask, I mean, we've, now we've identified two really hard problems. Yeah. What solution would you adopt if you were a senator? Oh, boy. Um, it's a good thing I'm not a senator. I mean, I've, I've done some writing about this. It's on lawfare. I, I think a way forward here would be to create in the Stored Communications Act an exemption uh, that allows production in response to certain kinds of foreign directives. Probably it's most convenient to do that where the executive branch of the United States government and the foreign government have reached an agreement requiring a full-blown treaty process mm -hmm. might be a bit too cumbersome. But basically for us to decide which kinds of directives, in which circumstances, from which governments, concerning which kinds of targets, maybe we only want to do it for you know non-U.S. persons, uh, are worthy of an exemption in the SCA, um, and, and well, and surely, surely that's right. I mean, it, it's a little obnoxious for us to say to the Brazilian law enforcement authorities, you've got two Brazilian crooks who are sending each other email, and we're going to sit in judgment about whether you can have that data. It, it, everything about that is, is Brazilian except where the data happens to reside. And I think this issue, um, this is an important issue. This one is, I think, uh, on the radar of the executive branch. It's just very difficult to solve it. I mean, I, I feel for the folks who are working on this. Um, but every day that goes by, they can't solve it. I think the pressure mounts. Um, and it's again, been very good for the um, Ju Justice Department's MLAT budget. They, they've got <laughs> lots of new sure lawyers. <laughs> I'm sure it has. And it, it comes in, a, in an environment, uh, you know, relating it back to the first point about technical assistance, in which I think U.S. providers, because of the pressure that they're under after the Snowden revelations um, and their their challenges with the sort of competitive advantage that they perceive in their foreign counterparts, their foreign competitors, uh, in the form of perceived relative immunity from surveillance, are, are clearly these days both, A, resisting uh, directives from the U.S. government in particular cases. We talked about the Apple case, and uh -huh. I mentioned briefly the Dublin case that Microsoft is litigating right now, in which they're resisting a Stored Communications Act directive to produce stored email of a suspected drug dealer, I gather, um, because the data are actually stored in Dublin, Ireland. Um, so you've got sort of individual moments in relatively high-profile cases where U.S. providers are resisting directives where they might not have in the past. And if you look at their transparency reports, which they're now authorized to publish, you see pretty explicit language uh, in which they say, we will not cooperate unless we are compelled to do so. 
I'm not for a moment suggesting U.S. providers are engaged in some kind of broad-based civil disobedience or, or you know, foot-dragging. They, they, they seem to be responding, at least in some way, on the order of 80% of the time uh, that they get U.S. law enforcement requests. Um, but they're pretty clearly much more reluctant to provide data when they're not compelled to do so. And there's stuff in FISA in, 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 the, in 702, if I remember, where the, the government just says, don't worry, it's legal. And that's not going to be enough, is my guess. There, there are a couple of areas that I am concerned uh, involve gaps in our law where we don't have the ability to compel a provider to turn something over. Um, the first is, under FISA, if the data, let's say email, are stored abroad in Dublin, um, you can't get a traditional FISA order to get that email. So Microsoft may win or it may lose on the criminal side under the Stored Communications but Act. But they would win for sure under FISA. I think they would win for sure under FISA, under traditional FISA. And while I don't think, while 702 would permit it, in my view at least, 702 doesn't apply, remember, when the target is a U.S. person mm-hmm. or when the target is even a non-U.S. person who's physically located in this country. So I think that's one gap. Unless the provider voluntarily repatriates that data, I am afraid that you can't get it under either traditional FISA or uh, FISA Amendments Act, where the data are abroad and the target is either a U.S. person or a person in this country. Because remember, even a U.S. person abroad under 704 of, of the FISA Amendments Act, there is no compulsory technical assistance provision there. That's just self-help by mm-hmm. the government. So that's one. I'd love to be wrong on that, and I welcome Congress telling me I'm wrong and it's nothing to worry about, but I'm worried about it. And the other one is for so-called transiting comms, um, where, you know, foreign-to-foreign communications sometimes, uh, we now talk about publicly, um, you know, hit U.S. facilities. Um, there is a provision in Title 18 uh, that allows the Attorney General to certify that, that it's permitted but not required. Mm, yes, you're to right. Turn those data over. I, I always think that 702 includes that, but it doesn't. Uh, it, it's it's very similar to 702 if, in the if sense you have that a, the, the right data is of... having a cup of coffee here in the United States. That's right. The da- data are just sort of uh, walking across our infrastructure. If you if you can use 702, you can use it. But again, 702 presupposes a specific target who is a non-U.S. person located abroad. So the provision I'm talking about is uh, 2511-2A2 of Title 18. That's the thing that lets the Attorney General say, yes, it's legal, but I can't compel you. I can just tell you that it's okay. You can instinctively approve or disapprove of any change in technology or the environment generally that either creates more or fewer opportunities for surveillance. I'm not taking really a position for these purposes on whether it's a good or bad thing that we do more or less. What I am saying is, Here's a gap or two gaps that have developed because of various changes in the environment, and we ought to think about it systematically. Do we want to fill these gaps or do we want to leave them empty? But again, we just need to come to grips with it. Yeah. Um, last last topic, I think, I, I, because I'm not sure we can get to all of them, yeah. is um, the thing that Nobody thought about right after 9-11, and almost all of the things that we're doing are things that we're now that we're arguing about are things that were put in place within three years of 9-11. Uh, uh, and social media barely existed at that point. Uh, uh, now they are um, enormous force, uh, sometimes for good, sometimes for, for ill in the fight against terrorism. Uh, uh, and 
none of our national security laws really take account of it. Uh, uh, how how should they? Um, well, I don't purport to have all the answers, but I will try to refine some of the questions. I mean, you're right. There's ever-growing amounts of data out there. And I think the first question about it is, who's supposed to have access to this open source and social media data? And, and I think there's sort of, at an intuitive level, two competing impulses that, that come to mind. On the one hand, hey, anybody should be able to read some Facebook post that I put on the Internet and share with 10,000 of my closest friends. I actually don't have nearly that many friends, which is a little sad, but I'm sure many people do. <laughs> well, other, half, half of them are spies <laughs> in our case. <laughs> and on the other hand, you know, I don't necessarily want the U.S. government vacuuming up my daughter's Facebook posts. Uh, so there's this question of who has access and, and competing intuitions about that. Um, second, I think there's questions about what really is open source. I mean, you were talking about people spoofing you by pretending to be your friend when they're really a spy. Well, is that open source collection if you have to lie? Um, is it open source if you do it openly? I've got several open, openly U.S. government friends. Um, you know, if you lie about who you are, if you fake some password to get into a chat room or whatever. Um, third, what about bulk collection? You know, I think you can go online and get all of the real estate transactions that have been done in, I don't know, Dearborn, Michigan, to just pick a city that's been used in these hypotheticals before. My hometown? Yeah. Well, Stuart, how do you feel about your old employer just vacuuming up all that data off the uh, off the Internet? It is open source in some way, but it, it it's maybe creepy for people to think that a government agency would just pull it all in and, and start messing with it. Well, and, and it's, it's a little silly because, of course... Zillow has that in an eminently searchable uh, yeah. uh, fashion, and you could go to Zillow and say, "I think the following kinds of transactions—you know, houses that flip 14 times with uh, uh, foreign owners in the Middle East—are suspicious." Uh, uh, and I'd like to know, are there any in Dearborn? Um. It's a little bit like the USA Freedom Act, where the data stays with the providers as opposed to coming into uh, the yes, servers. That's right. Me. Um, another one is the we've seen a lot of talk about this in the presidential race. The First Amendment issues involved in recruitment through social media and propaganda. I gather from reading on the internet that Twitter is being sued. Um, so there's going to be some interesting constitutional issues there, and I think there are also some really significant counterintelligence issues. Um, oh yeah, there, you, 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 there's 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 no way to do cover anymore. I don't know how you do undercover or knock where you know if when your children are when my children anyway the oldest of whom is 15 joins you know the CIA in in 10 years and I'm not saying that'll happen. Um, she's going to leave behind a, a whole online persona, um, and her younger sister is going to leave an even more developed online persona. So, so I have a partner whose son who's now got actually a Zillow competitor that's doing very well and we'll all be borrowing money from my uh, <laughs> partner's uh, son. But he got his start as a young teenager going online, playing games and building characters until they had all the weapons and uh, characteristics and spells that you would want to have and then selling them. Uh, so we should we should channel this we should we should pay our 13 year olds to build personas uh, that could be used by the CIA at a later time that would be awesome um, and what happens when you're in training you know uh, somewhere at a CIA facility and, and you later 
you know, show up in a class of, of people from another agency, but your online record is very different from theirs. Oh, yeah. um, th there's there's going to be a lot of challenges uh, around open source, the Internet of Things, and various other uh, developments technologically. Those are a little more speculative right now, but they seem to me still to be worthy of a good deal of attention because when they come and bite us, I think they might bite very hard. Well, and, and you know, based to, to take us back to where we started, uh, um, the law will turn out to be so unyielding and so detailed, thanks in part to uh, the B-Club and its fans, uh, that uh, the only way to actually utilize perfectly reasonable tools will turn out to be to violate the law, and some president will face, again, the, quest, the, 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 the issue that uh, uh, George W. Bush faced. Stuart, you've got a slightly different view of the P-Club than I do, and also maybe of the flexibility <laughs> of the legislative process, uh, but I do agree with you. There certainly are challenges ahead, and it would, it would behoove us to get Ahead of those challenges for once. Oh, wouldn't it be nice? Uh, instead of waiting for a catastrophe, because when a catastrophe occurs, as you very well know, that is the time when no one is at their most thoughtful, um, and you can end up with solutions that aren't so great, and they either over or underdo it. Better, I think, to uh, think about it ahead of time and maybe try to get it right before we face a crisis. Um, it's a it's a tall order, but. I'd, I'd certainly like to see it happen. So uh, the, the subtitle of my book, Skating on Stilts, is Why We Aren't Stopping Tomorrow's Terrorism. And uh, we've just had a good discussion of exactly why we aren't doing it. So be before I finish, uh, I always offer, offer my guests an opportunity to promote any speeches or uh, papers. You've already talked about the paper that's I coming up on there. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> so, yes, I, I, uh, kudos for your segue. If, you, uh, if you're having trouble sleeping, my uh, the treatise that I co-wrote with Doug Wilson is wonderful, um, and this new paper will be coming out shortly on uh, the future of foreign intelligence surveillance uh, through the Hoover Institute and uh, Lawfare. It should be online, I hope, in the next week or so. David Chris, thank you very much. My pleasure, Stuart. Thank you. Okay, thank you to uh, uh, David Chris for that uh, interview. Thank you also to Michael Vadis, Alan Cohn, Maury Schenk uh, uh, for their contributions to the News Roundup. Uh, I want to remind everybody that next Thursday, February 18, from 6 to 9 p.m., we will be live at the second Beer Summit with the Brookings Institute Lawfare uh, 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 at the Washington Firehouse, which was the place where we had it last time. Uh, this will be on the web, but if you're looking for it, it's 16. 26 North Capitol Street, Northwest in Washington, D.C. Uh, um, so please uh, uh, be there. Uh, uh, we're hoping to have as many people as possible at the uh, event, uh, uh, and we always sound better with a little beer in us. Uh, I the Cyberlaw Podcast is going to be open to feedback again. Uh, send your uh, thoughts to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and uh, we're always glad to get good reviews on iTunes or other podcast aggregators. Um, once again, let me celebrate the fact that we have gotten to episode 100 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Glenn Gerstel, the NSA General Counsel, by Phil Reidinger, who was uh, uh, a DHS cyber 
cybersecurity uh, um, uh, guru and uh, the uh, uh, head of the Global Cybersecurity Alliance. Uh, um, we'll have Jerry Britu and Robin Weissman from Coin Center. Uh, uh, and then on March 3rd, we'll be recording at the RSA conference out in San Francisco, California, uh, when we hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.